Films with the scent of potpourri Films with commit to memory Crossing the felt roads Watching from home on my TV Looking at all my eyes can't see They tell me I view obsessively Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, where a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show each episode. You can find more of our work at ObsessiveViewer.com, and while every episode will always be free, if you'd like to support what we do here and get bonus content... Uh, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, where we have tons of bonus audio content, including TV and book reviews, immediate reaction movie reviews, Patreon potpourri episodes, movie commentary tracks, and much more. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and with me today is, of course, Tiny, who you can find on Letterboxd at ObsessiveTiny, and our recurring co-host and creator of TheMovieState.com, who you can find at on Twitter at TheMovieState, uh ben sears how is it going this evening gentlemen wonderful nice tiny how's it going with you (laughs) yeah it's going awesome thanks nice nice uh great well uh today on the show we are going to be doing our 13th installment of our Ebert's Great Movies list uh, review series where we take, we each pick a movie from Roger Ebert's Great Movies list um, and we discuss each movie. We we do three movies at a time. This is our 13th edition. Uh, you can find more, uh, like a, a, an archive uh, page for this specific series of podcast episodes at obsessiveviewer.com slash Ebert series. Um, but before we get into all of that, um, I have like one little piece of news, but also I want to mention that if you like our theme song, um, it's a, uh, it's a little mad sometimes by as good as it gets, which you can find anywhere you stream music, uh, as good as it gets band. Um, I think they're, I, I didn't write down their website again. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I think it's as good as it gets band.com. Uh, so check that out. Um, yeah, so I do have a bit of news. Are you guys ready for it? Uh, yeah, are you guys ready for the one piece of news that I have for this episode? Yes, with it. Okay. No, I'm not. Okay, I will give you a little bit more time to prepare. No, um, <laughs> uh, apparently, I don't know if it's technically been greenlit yet, but the... Um, uh deadline reported um let me find let me find the actual article because i found it when we were taking a little bathroom break uh not together or anything but um so (laughs) uh joker sequel ago um todd phillips posts script cover uh joaquin phoenix nearing deal to reprise arthur fleck um and so the screenplay is titled Joker Folie Adieu, uh, the French reference being a medical term pertaining to a mental disorder which affects two or more people. Also, Folie Adieu was the, uh, was the title of a um, uh, Fall Out Boy album. Anyway, um, what do you guys think about the prospect of a sequel to Joker? And uh, are you guys interested or excited or where, where do you land on this news? Hard pass. <laughs> Tiny. Yeah, I'm not really, I'm yeah. not really very interested in it either, unfortunately. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I I liked it. Um I liked the first one well enough. I just hated the reaction to it. Like I kind of it's one of those things where I mean it's it is it's it's a it's a ripoff that wears its ripoff on its sleeves. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, yeah. actually I am kind of curious which uh, Scorsese movies Todd Phillips will rip, <laughs> rip off of this time. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. It, it, I feel like Todd Phillips and Walking Phoenix got kind of lucky. Mm-hmm. Um and people embrace the shit out of that movie. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. like it's, uh, I, I don't understand the huge enthusiasm for the movie. I thought it was good. I liked it. Yeah. made a billion was, dollars. Yeah. Oh, God, it's just been, I don't, I don't, I don't understand why. Won the golden lion award at the Venice film festival. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah. So <sighs> I, I think, I think a sequel is going to be a massive failure. Yeah. Best picture My nominee, God. um, mm-hmm. Joker, which I still I still think about that video of the that chode guy uh bitching about um Parasite winning best picture and how uh-huh. um <laughs> how he like it's it's the Oscars they should have they should have given it to an American movie like like Joker or 1917 <laughs> which is not an American movie <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, idiot. Um but yeah, I don't know. I'll reserve judgment for the final movie whenever it when or if ever it comes out, but yeah, I just thought that was kind of interesting. I I don't know. And anything is anything is possible with DC. I I don't know what they're doing. I liked the Batman. I'm glad we're getting a second the Batman, but I don't know like it's just so weird that they have kind of embraced this completely um sort of insane um, <laughs> uh insane kind of uh just like throw throw whatever at the wall and see what sticks kind of uh plan um mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a little see, silly speaking of uh upcoming movies that we're not excited for Matt mm-hmm. I thought that you were going to bring up this news story <laughs> that Variety broke earlier today. Julia Garner has been offered the role of Madonna in an upcoming biopic. I saw that. And because I, I know we've talked about our distaste for musician biopics. Yes. And uh, that one is probably at or near the top of the list of ones that I will <laughs> not want to see. Yeah. Even with her <laughs> casting, I, I just, I don't care. Um <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tiny. What do you make of this it, news? I'm I'm not as averse to the movie music biopic movies as you mm-hmm. guys are. Um, there are plenty of issues with them for sure, and they're not they're not like Oscar winning movies or anything. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I uh, I, I don't know. know. <laughs> uh, uh, Rami Malek won Best Actor mm-hmm. in Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, but what other Oscars did that movie win? Best editing, Best editing. <laughs> which is it really such a yeah, uh-huh. such a just. It was a joke. That's ridiculous. right. I remember that now. Yeah, some of the editing was awful in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, and you know, it's it's that classic. It's that not classic, but uh, it's the re- the recent formula where if you have a 
gay character that dies, you're going to win a bunch of Oscars. And so like, yeah. that, I, I, I count that one as a fluke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. We'll uh, see. Ren- Renee Zellweger also won best actress for Judy. That's right. She, I forgot about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, so I'm putting my foot in my mouth, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I we'll see. Julia, mm-hmm. Julia Garner is awesome. So yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and here in a couple of weeks, we're getting Elvis, which still I like, I literally cannot overstate how little interest I have in that movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. I only kind of do now because mm-hmm. I've heard it's a train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I might still see it, but I probably right. will see it, but yeah, no, I'm just really not interested in it. Um, I have low yeah. expectations. Yeah. Yep. But I don't really have a segue for this, but um, yeah. Do you guys want to just go ahead and get into the Ebert's Great Movies uh, thing? Because we got three movies to talk about, and um, I feel like these are going to be some interesting discussions. Uh, do you guys have any other new business before we dive in? Not me. Nice. Tiny, anything? Nope, I'm ready to go. All right, cool. And uh, yeah, so we, I will go ahead and play the jingle for our Ebert's Great Movies List seg- segment or series. So here we go. No name is more synonymous with film criticism than Roger Ebert's. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and children. People say, do film critics have too much power? To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. We can help a movie. We can help a movie by sharing our enthusiasm. We can't necessarily hurt a movie that is destined to be a big hit anyway. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. And then Roger Ebert gets up. What I uh, find very offensive and condescending about your statement is nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? Let us all unite! All right, and of course, the concept for our Ebert's Great Movies list uh, series is that uh, Roger Ebert had a collection of essays of over 300 uh, movies that he deemed as great, and I will read the uh, quote that is attributed to Mr. Ebert. Um, Here we go. Uh, The quote is, One of the gifts a movie lover can give another is the title of a wonderful film they have not yet discovered. Here are more than 300 reconsiderations and appreciations of movies from the uh, distant past to the recent past, all of movies that I consider worthy of being called great. And of course, each segment or each uh, edition of this um, review series on the podcast, we each pick a movie for from the list and then we talk about them. So we have three movies here and what we do is we go chronologically uh, by release date and this episode... Um, we've got Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb from 1964. And then in, uh, the next one we have is persona from 1966 and then the Godfather from 1972. And of course, if you want to skip around, check the show notes for the timestamps and everything. And, uh, yeah, so let's, let's dive into, uh, Dr. Strangelove. I actually have a clip from the trailer to, to play to bring us into that. So before, when, when I, yeah, let me go ahead and play the clip from the trailer and then Tiny, we can have you introduce Dr. Strangelove since it was your pick. So here's a clip from the trailer of Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove. Or, How I Learned to Stop Worrying. 
and love the bomb. A moving <laughs> picture. I shouldn't tell you this, Mandrake, but you're a good officer and you have a right to know. It looks like we're in a shooting war. Oh, hell. All the Russians are Bobson. Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Ruskies. I don't like the look of this, Fred. All right, so Tiny, what was your inspiration for picking Dr. Strangelove? And would you mind hitting us with the plot summary if you have it readily available? Yes. The plot summary is, An insane American general orders a bombing attack on the Soviet Union, triggering a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically tries to stop. Nice. Um, I, yeah. Um, I picked this movie... Um, because I'm, I'm a huge Stanley Kubrick fan. He's one of my top five favorite directors. And um, this might be, I haven't seen all his movies, but this might be his most unique movie. Um, I, this is one of the only comedies he made, he ever made, maybe the only comedy he ever made. Hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's probably one of the first, um, I'm this again, this is kind of guessing, but it's probably one of the first kind of satirical movies that ever really broke big. Um, also, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the first of its kind and maybe the best of its kind. Um, and I, I've seen the movie a handful of times and, uh, I've always appreciated, uh, the comedy of it, the filmmaking, the writing, the acting, everything about it is, uh, just a really, really good time. Um, you know, most of the time Kubert kind of makes you think, or hits you with some really wacky um, philosophy or, uh, you know, wide camera angles. And uh, it's disturbing sometimes. It's all kinds of different things. And I feel like Dr. Strangelove sits apart from a lot of those other movies that he makes. Um, and he's one of the best filmmakers ever. So I was excited when this was on the list and I really wanted to pick it. So, yeah. Nice, nice. I will say, in terms of satire, uh, definitely The Great Dictator um, mm -hmm. predates this. So I just wanted to say that. Um, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, I I agree. It is it is a very unique Kubrick movie. Um, ben, what are your feelings on Doctor Strangelove? Um, yeah, it's. Uh... I, I was definitely going to say uh, before you said it, Tiny, that uh, uh, this definitely feels like an outlier amongst Kubrick's filmography. I mean, especially knowing the little bit that I know about Kubrick and how he was as a filmmaker, I can't imagine that this is the same guy that made Dr. Strangelove um, because it's just such a tonally different movie from, you know, The Shining or even Paths of Glory, which we've already talked about, yeah. or 2001. Um, but it's, it's I maybe this is sacrilegious, but I think this might actually be my favorite Kubrick movie. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, of course, the artistry and everything about 2001 uh, is just undeniable. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, but I guess I'm just like preternaturally drawn to comedies and, uh, this is one that I keep wanting to come back to over and over again. Nice. And you know, it's interesting. I, 
I kind of have, I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle here. Um, I really appreciate Dr. Strangelove. I really enjoy it. I think that it, the, the comedy, the satire of it is, is just very unique. Like my, my letterbox review was, uh, the satire is lovely yet horrifying. The, and, uh, the way Kubrick and the class inject in the cast inject dry, ordinary dialogue, given complete, giving complete, given completely straight during a crisis is a treat in and of itself. Um, but also showing the absurdity of government agencies in general while attempting to avoid catastrophe is some shining social commentary, no pun intended. Um, and that, that's kind of what I, like, it's, there, there are a few scenes that are like, like just outwardly hilarious. Like I, I, uh, I cracked up at the, <laughs> the you're going to have to deal with the Coca-Cola company line like that. <laughs> is an all timer. Like I, yeah, I kind of, I forget about that line whenever I revisit this, but I just find Dr. Strangelove to be such an interesting movie. Um, because of its satire, because of the way that it, it deals with a very serious, um, subject matter during an era where that subject matter could be in the backyard. That could be a realistic situation. And what I find even more enthralling or interesting doesn't necessarily have much to do with the movie itself. Just the fact that this movie was, I don't remember the details of the, the this piece of trivia, but basically this, this movie was inspired by a book which was also being adapted or was the inspiration for the um, Sidney Lumet movie um, Failsafe, which came out the same year, had very similar plot. And they are just two completely different movies, obviously. And to be honest, like, to be completely honest, if, unfortunately, Failsafe is not on the list, but I prefer Failsafe over this because it is, it is an incredible mm. movie. Yeah. But, and I, and I, I wouldn't say, you know, I, this is, this is a very good Kubrick movie, but it's, uh, it can't be the shining or 2001 for me, <laughs> but I do appreciate it uh, quite a bit. And the performances are, are fantastic. Yeah. Nice. I think yeah. um, for me, kind of, you kind of touched on a Matt. what, what really outside of Kubrick and, and his career and filmography and everything, I think what makes it um, a remarkable movie is the context of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1964, know who's the, the throes of the cold war and uh were kids uh in school having you know humming drills where they get under their desks and mm. literally the the threat of nuclear war was real and it was uh there were people who were genuinely scared about it all the time mm. and to take something that serious and satirize it was ballsy as all hell and yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big history fan as well. And post-war history is especially really fascinating to me. And so, um, just, just having, having thought about living through that, you know, uh, something like the Cuban missile crisis or, um, just, just the general, uh, you know, the, the red scare and uh, McCarthyism and all that, um, take something that serious and something that is still taught history classes, 
and just satirize it in the middle of it is just one of the ballsiest things I've think mm-hmm. of. And uh, the fact that it successful um, kind of blows me away. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there was uh, if the internet had existed, I cannot imagine um, conservative people just uh, yeah. shitting on this movie <laughs> on the internet <laughs> when it came out. I, it was pretty much guaranteed that would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just that the, the context of it for me is just kind of mind boggling really. Um, and you know, Kubrick was really good at that. If uh, mm-hmm. you know, by 2001, a space odyssey came out, two years before we landed on the moon, I want to say. I think one, one year, years. yeah. Yeah, um, and so the, the science and the, the the exploration of that movie, you know, a, a year before the greatest greatest space exploration event of all time uh, is just kind of mind-boggling um, for a different reason than this. But, um, yeah, I, I just think the ballsiness of, of choosing to make this movie a comedic satire is really... Really incredible. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I think for people of our generation who, uh, grew up after, um, Dr. Strangelove had come out and had kind of run its course already. I think I had already kind of knew, known this movie just by some of its most iconic imagery. Like obviously there's the, uh, general or uh, lieutenant or whatever, King Kong riding the bomb like yeah. a like a Bronco or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I I knew that when I was a kid. I don't remember how, but I knew that that was like a thing that was satirized or you know ripped off or whatever mm-hmm. or referenced. Um, and then the uh, the war room. That's that's yeah. such an iconic set. I I can understand why, but uh, I just remember seeing, you know, anytime a movie or a TV show wanted to do some kind of fictional situation room or a, a panic room or whatever where the government was involved, it looked almost exactly like the war room in this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And uh, Kubrick's choice to shoot it in black and white in that kind of like monochrome um just the cinematography therein is like i mean it it's gorgeous it's absolutely gorgeous um especially the war room set and even like there are moments and i think that well, i probably mentioned this when we talked about paths of glory as well but i think with paths paths of glory i talked about how it um likely set if not directly influenced sam mendez with uh 1917 in terms of filming the trench warfare stuff it at least set like the example for how to film that kind of thing um and i feel like that that same principle or idea is present in dr strangelove when you have the the uh the firefights um outside of uh the general's um office where he's where he's hunkered down and everything I like watching that. It just, it really like that over the shoulder, um, handheld style. That's ground level at eye level from the people operating the guns and everything, the shaky cam aspect of it. I'm like, Oh my God, like Spielberg saving private Ryan, (laughs) like directly like reference. Like there are scenes that feel like 
in Saving Private Ryan are direct homages to like the exact shots that Kubrick did in this movie. And I don't know. I just think that I think that there's a bigger statement to make. And this is not a hot take or anything. This is not something that anyone hasn't thought or said before. (laughs) But Kubrick, man, I mean, like I his body of of work has so much so so much um far reaching influence on on the craft of filmmaking and on the medium of film that it's just staggering to me um and that's something that i i take away from pretty much any time i see a kubrick movie um and dr strange love is no different and i've seen this movie several times before um it's just very striking his his relationship to war is really intriguing because mm-hmm. uh, three of his biggest movies, Paths of Glory, this, and then Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are three different mm-hmm. wars too. Um, World War, I guess you can count. But yeah, it's 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 fascinating that he went back to that. He drew from that well three mm-hmm. three times. A lot of you know a lot of filmmakers don't make at least I'm, not that I can think of three war movies i'm sure there's some out there but that's that's not common really Mm -hmm. um that is kind of an interesting uh something interesting to note um uh have you guys really seen peter sellers in many other performances i think this might be the only thing i've ever seen him in Uh, honestly i don't think i have really either um no i don't think i have Okay. I think didn't he win an Oscar for being there? I want to say. Um. Oh, I have I'm no sure. idea. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I... I mean, he he was. I pretty much the other thing that I know him from is from all the Pink Panther movies, and I've never seen any of those. So. Mm. Right. Uh, he was here. nominated for Best Actor for being there. I don't know that he won. He was also nominated for this, um, for Best Actor. Okay. Yeah. Didn't remember. Um, but, you know, he. I think he's, he's, the, he's the linchpin of this movie. I mean, th- mm-hmm. there's there's mm-hmm. several other great performances, and there's comedy from several actors. But yeah. um, when you think about playing three different roles and those roles are very distinct from one another. I mm-hmm. feel like it kind of doesn't feel like Peter Sellers is playing three roles in this movie. Right. Which, which is an insane yeah. statement. Um, you know, cause it, they just feel so different and unique from one another. Yeah. Um, and then you add in the fact that he improvised most of it, like, which I mean, Stanley Kubrick is famously or infamously a perfectionist. Yeah. And, mm-hmm have a lot of actors um who literally a hundred takes of some scenes mm-hmm. and as, as an improvisational comedic actor I, I just cannot imagine that that must have been so taxing and arduous mm-hmm. to to do um but it doesn't show in the movie at all like it's all it all looks so organic his performance just seems so genuine and really really incredible i, I i'm kind of blown away by Peter Sellers. I want to see who he lost the Oscar to this year. Yeah. Uh, for this movie. Um, he did win a golden globe for being there. So that, that's something. Um, okay. 
and I think he was he oh interesting he was in Carol for another Christmas a uh, uh, kind of TV movie um, play on uh, um, a Christmas Carol written by Rod Serling um, uh, he was also mm-hmm. in Lolita mm-hmm. okay I don't remember him I've seen Lolita I don't remember him in that I, I wasn't crazy about that movie and it was mm-hmm. a long time ago though yeah, I I don't think I've seen him in really anything else. Um, um, uh, Peter Sellers lost Best Actor to Rex Harrison from My Fair Lady. Oh, okay. Uh, hmm. Which, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but I hate that movie. Oh, really? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if I had... Uh, seen this movie before the internet, I don't know if I would have been able to tell that that was all Peter Sellers. Uh, mm. That's that's how good it is and how different it is. But wow. I also uh, think that uh, Sterling Hayden is just as incredible. Uh, uh, no, not sorry, not Sterling Hayden, George C. Scott. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> he, is, he is just so... F- I think he kind of gets the the funniest bits in this movie, at least to me. Not only that, but just all of his reactions, especially mm-hmm. in the war room bits, um, they're they're just so funny. Yeah, and I just just the way that he chews gum is funny to mm-hmm. me. Yes, I was going to say that. It, yeah. the physicality of his role is so it's the it's the funniest and, part. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking not only of that, but of the improvisational thing, the the bit where he trips that was uh, not intended, but Kubrick kept it in. Oh, that's awesome! I didn't know that. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's one of my favorite parts. It's just so, mm-hmm. it's just so casual and holy crap! Like just his commitment to that is fantastic. Um, yeah. And not. He, uh... Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, P- Peter Sellers was supposed to play that role as well. Right. They asked him to play that role, and he turned it uh, down because he thought thought it was too physical. <laughs> no, no. He he was supposed mm. to do uh, Major King Kong in the plane, oh. but he oh, couldn't he was... do he couldn't do the accent. Or didn't oh, think oh. confused. Okay, I must have gotten confused. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. I've got to say, I hate the accent so much. I I just hate that accent in general. Like, <laughs> and that's. Probably I I don't know I mean Slim Pickens is fine but that 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 accent is just kind of grating on my nerves a little bit. <laughs> um, it's pretty unique. Know. Yeah, I I think it almost kind of like heightens the comedy just in a in a different weird way, you know. Um, yeah, it does fit. It's just grating on my right. ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I love that choice because. Um, because of the stark contrast to mm-hmm. communism and the Soviet Union, I, yeah. I think that's you know the, the, there's no like you can't confuse him for not being an American. Like yeah. he is a Texan through and through. Yeah, um, I think it's kind of aesthetically um, entertaining to put him in that role. Yeah, and it is it is appropriate. I would say. Um, yeah. 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 Oh. And this is, you know, no secret. It's uh, pretty high up on there in the IMDb trivia, so it's not, mm-hmm. you know, any new fact or anything. But I just love how Kubrick didn't tell him that the movie was going to be a comedy, so he played it completely straight. 
Yeah. So <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> I also, this is just me being stupid, but I uh, inherently love uh, movies and TV shows with characters that have dumb names. And this yeah. has some of the dumbest names. Oh, it's great. <laughs> yep. Jack D. Ripper. Uh, uh-huh. Colonel Baguano. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm forgetting what uh, what Peter Sellers' uh, uh, president name is, but it, it was that's another funny one. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then the, the Air Force Base is Burpleson Air Force Base. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a General Faceman. Uh, yeah, just, uh, I love it. Yeah, me too. I agree. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, to kind of wind down this, this review of, of Dr. Strangelove, um, to kind of circle back to George C. Scott real quick. Um, and I don't mean to kind of keep bringing up like, oh, influence on present media and everything or whatever, or more modern media, but I couldn't help but think like watching this movie, I... Uh, again, I couldn't help but think that, um, I don't know for certain, but I feel like it must have influenced, at least to some degree, um, Tim Robinson's kind of whole thing. Like in, um, I think you should leave. He kind of carries himself in a similar way to George C. Scott, like the way that he kind of, I don't know, it's very particular, but the way that he's like explaining things, uh, to people in the war room, just really like Tim Robinson's kind of demeanor just, in several sketches is is reminiscent of that to me. Yeah, I, I can kind of see that. He's like always got his arms flailing around. And, yeah. Uh, jumping up and down. And, yeah. Yeah. You can see that. Yeah. So I don't know, just a little anecdote thing. Um, yeah. Any Any kind of wrap up thoughts for Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb? No, I I don't think so. Nice, tiny. How about you? Yeah, I, I not much else I can think of other than um, I I just love how um how like you were saying how influential it is uh, the context of it um how unique it is um I I can't really other than like super blatant non satirical movies like I guess airplane is air airplanes mm-hmm. not really satire it's just nah. straight up comedy yeah it's, I think it's, a, it's kind of a one-of-a-kind movie dr strangelove mm-hmm. it is i i don't know maybe maybe it doesn't fall strictly in the definitions of satire but i know it was definitely a riff on those like disaster serial yeah. kind of movies of the 50s or whatever mm-hmm. that's true yeah yeah but it doesn't change the fact that dr strangelove is still super unique and uh it was ahead of its time for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I really, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> let's go kind of around the horn. What's everyone's rating out of five stars and do you give it a thumbs up or thumbs down? And finally, uh, would you put it on your own great movies list? Uh, Tiny, since this was your pick, do you want to get us kicked off with your ratings, thumbs, and great movies list? Yeah. Um, I I gave it five stars. Um, nice. I think it's brilliant. Thumbs up for sure, and definitely on my greatest movie list. Nice. Ben, how about you? 
Uh, yeah, also five stars, also a thumbs up. Uh, I'm I'm kind of surprised that we're not all doing this, but uh, I I know I would put uh, instead of this, I would put our generation's uh, Doctor Strange, oh, which no. is don't look up. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> oh, oh Man, I'm no! Sure that's that's what you were gonna say, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh. Oh man. No thank you. Uh yeah, uh th- this definitely would be on my great movies list. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Um so I I rated it four and a half stars. Um even though I I liked it probably the least of the three of us, which is not saying much because it was by a very small margin, um I would give it a thumbs up, obviously. But honestly, I I think, I mean, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to determine if it would be on my great movies list or not because sitting there without, or or sitting there that's a movie that's not on the great movies list is um, Failsafe, which I said earlier in this episode, I feel is a superior movie to this um, because it is just incredibly tense. And I mean, it's not, like the the comedy of Doctor Strangelove is brilliant. There is no denying that at all, at all. But I feel like Failsafe is just a more uh, a more indicative movie of the time. And yeah, I I, I think that I prefer it over that. So I would put that on the greatest movies li- great movies list. Um, uh, in interesting s- instead of this, yeah. Uh, as I someone seen who's, that one. yeah, I I've seen Failsafe as well. I it was a fantastic movie. I really liked it. So mm-hmm. I, I don't uh, don't uh, besmirch that at all. That's a good choice. Nice. Well, nice. the other thing that we haven't said is that like this is our third uh, Kubrick movie that we've talked about so yeah. far, and there's still a lot to go. Oh yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I guess it just depends on uh, how much Kubrick you want to have on your list. Yeah. True. Yeah, that's true. And that was a little bit of a factor in that kind of roundabout way of uh, kind of excising it from the list um, for me. Because, I mean, we have Paths of Glory. We have 2001 A Space Odyssey um, and others that I can't think off the top. Is The Shining on it? The Shining's on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I think Failsafe is uh, is the superior movie for for my taste. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So shall we move on to the next movie? Um. Ingmar Bergman's 1966 movie Persona, and uh, I'm gonna play a clip from the trailer for this one now, and then once we come back from the clip, uh, Ben, if you would wouldn't mind, bring us into the plot summary and everything. So. Here's a clip from the trailer for Persona. In these words, the leading film critics of Europe have honored Ingmar Bergman's new film, Persona. Persona is a knowledge, a terrible knowledge of our loneliness, our estrangement, our inability to reach one another. It is a confession of our fears, of man, of failure, of death. 
right, so Ben, why don't you hit us with the plot summary for Pers- Persona and let us know why you chose uh, this movie for this edition of the Ebert's Great Movies List review series on Obsessive Viewer. All right, uh, Persona uh, came out in uh, 1966 or 1967. I don't know. I've seen both lately. Mm. That's uh, I, I don't know what exactly. Um, but directed yeah. and written by Ingmar Bergman, uh, plot description, a nurse is put in charge of a mute actress and finds that their persona are melting together. Um, and I mostly just picked this because I think I had said this when I picked it, but uh, Ingmar Bergman is a big uh, movie blind spot for me. Uh, this is the first of his that I have seen. And uh, it's uh, there's, there's a lot of his movies on the list and... Um, figured this would be a good place to start because I know it's highly regarded and highly rated amongst his films. Nice. And Tiny, have you seen, had you seen any Ingmar Bergman movies or was this your first as well? I've seen uh, The Seventh Seal, but I don't really remember it. I remember liking it, but Mm -hmm. um, it's been so long, I, I don't really remember it that well. Nice. This was my first Bergman movie um, myself. And yeah, I've always wanted to see several of his movies. And I even have the big Criterion Blu-ray set, um, the cinema or like Ingmar Bergman's cinema um, that I have yet to crack open. Even for this, I watched this on HBO Max. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but yeah, so so this was my introduction to Bergman. yeah yeah so what did what did you guys think of it um ben do you want to give your your kind of overall thoughts and we can kind of jump into the discussion from there sure uh yeah so i i really didn't know what to expect because like i said i know next to nothing about ingmar bergman or his films um and this turned out to be really interesting to me um a lot more for lack of a better word, experimental mm-hmm. uh, than I was anticipating. Um, uh, definitely, uh, like, as soon as it was over, I kind of wanted to watch it again just because I felt like um, there were things that on a rewatch that I could have uh, picked up on that, like, went over my head or that I and keyed into as much, uh, the first time, um, Mm -hmm. and just, uh, was really impressed with it. Um, and it made me, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it more, but, uh, made me really want to watch more of Ingmar Bergman's films. Nice. And tiny looking at your rating on letterboxd, I'm thinking that (laughs) you're going to have, um, a different opinion of this. So what were your overall thoughts on, on persona? Yeah, maybe my rating was a little harsh. I I don't know. Um but I um <laughs> I thought it was okay. Uh I mostly I was intrigued the entire time as to what was going on and I I was definitely um but on the edge of my seat, but I was I was really intrigued and interested in the movie. Um and I'll also say that I think the 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 two main actresses uh bb anderson and liv ullman were both absolutely incredible mm-hmm. um yeah. both roles had their own uh challenges too i think uh 
Anderson was really tasked with um, having to sort of carry the movie with dialogue because she, the other uh, Elizabeth, uh, the other uh, character is mute. So she has to kind of carry all the dialogue. Um, But I think it's easy to overlook Liv Ullman, but she had a huge task as well because she couldn't speak. You know, she had to emote and act with her face and her body language and, that performance was almost equally as impressive. So um, I give both of them a lot of credit for that. Uh, I also give Bergman a lot of credit for um, what I can only assume is a bit of a, uh, a bit of controversy maybe, or um, kind of pushing the envelope as far as some of the content in the dialogue. There's some stuff about sex and stuff like that, that I'm sure mm-hmm. was frowned upon or maybe not well, um, maybe not that well accepted by some people when this movie came out, just based on when it came out. Um, and that was really intriguing to me. I, I thought that was really, really incredible. Um, so having said the the positive things, the, the negative for me was just that I, I, I don't think it, it was a very fluid movie. I think it was um, kind of a lot of scenes and vignettes that didn't seem to flow together all that well. I thought the pacing was off quite a bit. Um, it, it was mostly just a flow issue. It, it felt mm-hmm. like um, a bunch of kind of vignettes or scenes just kind of thrown together. Me, I, I, I didn't get a uh, much of a thread through the movie, and uh, I think it just kind of everything just kind of clashed together. A lot of the scenes just kind of clashed together. It wasn't a lot of it wasn't wasn't fluid for me. So, yeah. Honestly, I might be more in your boat with this. Um, to be honest, I I honestly think maybe my I rated it three and a half stars. It, that might be a little bit generous, and I think that that's more just my insecurities as a as a movie watcher for this. Because I'll I'll quickly read my Letterboxd review. I put. Um, <laughs> LOL at me thinking it's a good idea to watch my first ever Bergman movie while I'm tired and almost ready to go to bed. (laughs) Uh, This was trippy, strange, and disorienting. I'm not even going to attempt to parse out thoughts on what I just watched, and I'm not confident that a night's sleep will help me form any cogent thoughts. For better or worse, this is certainly one of the more unique films I've seen, and I'm eager to let it settle in and occupy my mind for a while. And I stand by that, but also I definitely agree with you, Tiny, that it does feel very disconnected and disjointed. I don't understand I don't I don't understand the significance or or the reason behind like the weird experimental kind of gross opening images and like the the very disorienting kind of kind of thing. I think that that kind of is a little bit clued in. I'm a little bit clued into that or or clued into like a kind of reason behind that with, um, Elizabeth's Elizabeth, Elizabeth, I don't know. Um, her, um, I think it was her, her reaction to the footage on the television of, uh, it was war riots or something. I don't know. Burning person. Like Mm -hmm. I can kind of understand that. Like I kind of, I don't know this this might I I feel like I'm going out on a limb here because I'm not sure that I really formed a complete thought on this but I'm just going to kind of roll with it but it felt to me like that character she is she's an actress she's a performer uh 
and her like sudden muteness is brought on in my opinion or, or in my perspective brought on by just knowledge of the horror of the world like it just kind of seems like the violence and just the inhuman atrocities on the planet causes her to just go into a near catatonic mute state and that's kind of like, like that's what I kind of grasped at and then like that was the thought that I had and then it didn't really ever form a full thought in my head while I was watching it which I would attribute to me just being kind of a moron but also <laughs> maybe the movie not communicating its its theme and and statements that clearly to me so maybe I just latched onto the most um the most plain or straightforward uh, metaphor that I could form for it. So I don't know. Did you, any of you go, how did you guys feel about the subtext of the movie or the meaning behind the movie? So, uh, a couple of thoughts actually, mm -hmm. uh, Matt, I actually also watched this as I was, uh, drowsy and, nice. um, was worried that I was going to fall asleep in the middle of it. Mm. Um, but, uh, which is oddly kind of fitting mm -hmm. given the movie. Um, but, uh, first on the, uh, the opening images, I feel like there is a, uh, a thesis statement that, uh, Bergman is trying to make with those. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if I was any smarter, I would be able to figure out what it is. <laughs> and I feel like I kind of might, okay. if I could sit down with it for a couple minutes, mm -hmm. um, but I was I was actually really drawn into it because of that because nice. they were all of those images, even if they didn't necessarily connect together very fluidly, they were all just visually so striking and so visceral that yeah. I was just instantly hooked and and brought it brought me into the movie. Um, but uh, to talk about the the scene where she is watching the Buddhist monk uh, setting himself on fire. Mm -hmm. I think there is a read on it where, like you said, Matt, like she sees these horrible things going on in the world and she just sees them and wants to retreat into them because I'm, I'm sure that that news footage was fairly recent for mm -hmm. 1966 or 67 or whatever. Um, but then there's also the, uh, the photo from the Holocaust that she's looking at later. Yeah. Um, and at least with the Buddhist monk image, I kind of saw that as she's watching this guy setting himself on fire to prove this, uh, moral point almost, or a social point and in some way she's kind of doing that with herself as well. Um, okay. I don't know, maybe I'm off base with that, I, but I, I thought of that as uh, a, a way to look at it as well. I don't know if there's a right or a wrong answer to it, but that's just kind of what I thought of it. That's really interesting because, to be honest, and I think that this shows kind of how sort of disengaged I was with the art of the movie, I don't know if I'd say disengaged, really. I was just not on the same wavelength, I guess, which maybe is a synonym of being disengaged, but I don't know. But anyway, um, I didn't realize, like, it was a, it was like a, a 
a monk setting himself on fire. I, I was kind of lost in that. Um, I didn't know what the context was. And I'm sure that it said it, it, it made it clear, but it just wasn't that clear to me. And I just, it was, it was a struggle to really latch on to, to what exactly was going on at any given moment. Um, so maybe that's a fault of me. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I might be totally wrong. Tiny, you might, uh, know more about this since you are better at history, but I feel like I remember seeing something like when studying like the Vietnam war, um, whatever was going on in, uh, China or Vietnam or that part of the world at that time, I feel like that was a part of what that was from. Right. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I, I'm not, <laughs> but, I don't, I don't know the context of that. I know it's a famous film that was right. Um, it was a famous protest, I guess. Um, I, I just don't right. know a lot about it either. So yeah, unfortunately I can't really help out there. But. I mean, yeah. just, just based on his pose as he's sitting there in that, in that stance, I feel like that's a, a Buddhist, uh, Buddhist monk kind of, uh, way of, sitting i don't know Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, that 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 makes sense to me now yeah yeah i as far as the imagery for me i thought it was a little um kind of i think the 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 monk setting himself on fire was the best example of it and i thought that was actually made sense um i feel like the other stuff was just kind of shoehorned in there it felt a little um sophomoric I think it just it wasn't very creatively incorporated into the movie in my opinion um I know a filmmaker kind of like um Lynch um David Lynch kind of does that as well sometimes with some of his movies he'll just kind of shoehorn in some imagery and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't yeah um I'm thinking specifically of like Blue Velvet maybe Mulholland Drive a little bit he kind of did some of that and I was like "Eh, it just kind of took me out a little bit I didn't think it was particularly effective um almost seems a little maybe this is kind of harsh but it seems a little lazy to me it's like well i want people to be sick and so i'm just going to show them something sick and it's like no that's not really i don't know if that's creative or not but um i I wasn't particularly keen on that strategy i you know yeah especially the opening the opening scene i was Mm -hmm. just like what's going on like i i was not on board with that yeah, I feel like it leaves it way it leaves it too open to interpretation in my opinion yeah. and too ambiguous. Right. Yeah. It's it's funny that you say that tiny about uh David Lynch and Mulholland Drive cuz I feel like after watching this I read a couple things uh you know on Letterboxd and uh what Ebert said about the movie uh but a couple people and even friend of the show and recent guest Brent nice. uh I asked him about it because it's one of his favorite movies. Mm -hmm. And he said he mentioned Mulholland Drive on it as well. And I can, I didn't think about it at the time, but I can definitely see the uh, references to this uh, in Mulholland Drive. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll say that the, the visuals even outside of the, the, TV scene. Mm-hmm. Actually, I did just uh, look it up on Wikipedia. That was a Buddhist monk in Vietnam okay. who was protesting the South Vietnamese government. Wow. Um, but anyway, um, 
I just really loved how Bergman framed uh, a lot of these scenes with uh, the two actresses together. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one that stood out to me um, where they're both wearing black, like black turtlenecks, I think. Mm-hmm. And he frames them in such a way that it's like, it's almost like uh, one of them is in the foreground, one's in the background. And the way that they all almost kind of meld together, it almost looks like there's one body uh, or one body and one head, even yeah. though it's two separate people. And so I, I yeah. just love the, and there's, there's different examples of that, but it's kind of hard to describe it. Um, uh, and I, I love the, the visual way that uh, Bergman was able to, um, signify these two people almost becoming one yeah yeah i will agree with you on that i think um uh, i, I kind of overlooked that there was some damn good camera work in this movie um mm-hmm. i, I kind of perused the uh trivia a little bit but i think bergman and maybe the dp or something like that they were like this is going to be a movie of wide shots and close-ups like i think they said that mid shots are I can't, maybe, maybe I'm misremembering, but it seemed to be the visuals that are standing out to me are some of the, um, you know, the gorgeous beach, uh, each countryside wide shots that we got. And then these intense close-ups, kind of like you were just describing Ben. Um, I think that paired with some really good lighting and some blocking, you know, like you were saying that was really creative and actually that's, probably going to be what sticks with me for this movie mm-hmm. some of the some of those visuals and that camera work so yeah that's i agree with you on that and uh one of uh, i i didn't know this was from this movie but one of my favorite images is from that opening sequence and and i think at the end as well i think uh which is the the cover art of that criterion set with the the kid and the hand up yeah. of, up against the screen with the woman's face i thought that was really cool that's right. That is the cover of the Criterion set, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. The imagery is really interesting and unique and everything. And it's funny, like bringing up Mulholland Drive, like, yeah, that's that's very similar. I wasn't making that connection. Interestingly enough, um, while watching it, I was making the connection to uh, uh, some similarities to uh, Celine Sciamma's uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um like in particular, like the scenes where they're running on the beach, I was like, "Whoa, that looks exactly like what what she did." Uh, would later go on to do Celine Sciamma did with a uh, um, portrait of a lady on fire. I don't know. Maybe I was just grasping that's interesting. It. Yeah, um, um, yeah. I mean, I I feel like there are a lot of uh, movies that reference this or are indebted to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm. I can't think of too many off the top of my head, but like just any kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if psychological horror or psychological thriller would be going too far, but kind of in that same vein, you know, like, um, what is it? Is it a single white female where, oh, yeah. where the roommate, like tries to become the other one. Yeah. Um, something like that. I'm, right. I'm not familiar with that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, I'm sure there are tons more that owe, uh, themselves to this one. Yeah. 
it's interesting that these three movies we're talking about tonight are three incredibly influential movies. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty neat how that kind of uh, falls together. All three of them are all three of them are wildly different from each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, um, yeah. One thing I was when I was watching this, um, I was kind of thinking of. Um, Oh, it just popped out of my head. Um, the the um, Soviet movie we watched uh, for this, um, Solaris. Oh, Solaris, yeah. Uh-huh. It made me think of Solaris a little bit as well. Um, and someone, I can't remember who it was, was someone remade it with George Clooney in the 2000s. Was that Soderbergh? Soderbergh, Soderbergh. Soderbergh yeah. 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 Um, I would be curious to see someone remake this. Um mm-hmm. Especially someone like maybe like Alex Garland or like Darren Aronofsky. Oh, interesting. Or um, Danny Boyle. Ari Aster. Oh yeah. Um, like, I think there's hmm. there could be some interesting. Could take this concept, um, which at its core is really intriguing, um, and just kind of run with it and a modern version of this movie. I think that could be really cool. You know, it, it's funny. Um, uh, there's an essay on the Roger Ebert website uh, where they kind of look at uh, specifically 2019 horror movies through the lens of Persona. And one of the ones that they mentioned was Midsommar. Oh, interesting. Um, and Jordan mm-hmm. Peele's Us. Mm-hmm. So, Jordan Peele would be interesting to see him make this movie, remake mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I, I think there is a, there are a lot of... Uh, movies that owe themselves to this like i said that oh yeah that feeling of duality and uh mirror images of someone or you know uh, psychological manipulation type mm-hmm. of movies because i think it's it's interesting that um the actress uh elizabeth like she she seems so helpless and yet the ways that she exerts this power over Alma is really interesting to me. Um, it it doesn't it didn't go where I thought it would go mm-hmm. uh, several times, and I I thought that it was really interesting. Yeah, with, with just a few exceptions, she's mm-hmm. almost completely in the in control the whole time, and it's just by just not saying anything. Yeah, absolutely. And and I definitely agree with that. There was something about something about it that this is not this is teetering on maybe spoilery stuff, but well, I'll be I'll be safe. But um there's something to the fact that like uh Alma is able to just open up and tell her like the most intimate details of her life. And Again, this is my kind of Neanderthal brain trying to trying to piece together the jigsaw puzzle of persona into something that my pea brain can understand. But I kind of keep coming back to the fact that she's an artist, that Elizabeth is an artist and she's an actress. And I have this kind of like thing eating at me that's like, okay, as a performer, as an actress, she is like her purpose, her job is to take like, is to observe people and observe human behavior, distill that into something where she can 
not not necessarily emulate it or anything, but to to present it to an audience. So her control over Alma is that she has this power that she doesn't need to speak about or she doesn't need to speak or anything. She's still getting getting that that kind of um that data for lack of a better word from from Alma and it causes this rift between them where she's somewhat betraying her that she's like she's telling uh she's she's using using her uh confidence in her and using her her um candor toward toward Elizabeth uh, kind of against her or she's playing with her cuz she can't have like doesn't seem to have like a strong human emotion or anything or like an actual emotional connection. It's just, it's just parsing out data. I don't know. Does any of that make sense? Um, or am I way off the mark? Cause again, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. I, um, looked into it more than I did. I think, um, one thing that also kind of bothered me maybe, or just kind of threw me off is that I didn't, you know, I feel like the, these two women were on this retreat for a like a clinical reason, and it was supposed to be mm-hmm. a form of therapy. And obviously, it was therapeutic for Alma. Um, and she, you know, she's sharing all these things, like you said, and th- those were her performance was just incredible in those scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like um, there there was very little. Uh, attempt to do any kind of uh i don't know what the word is like a psychology or or uh, you know some clinical treatment it didn't feel like there's any treatment there you know i, I don't know if yeah. it was just old school like oh you just need to get away for a while i don't know if that's that was the, <laughs> the theory behind it or whatever but it it just felt um no i, I guess that's not necessarily important to it but it, it, it that was in my opinion part of the thread being lost and, and part of the disjointed nature of the movie is that the onus for the trip just felt kind of lost after a little while. And it, I, I don't know, it was just kind of weird. That's, that's sort of a nitpick, I guess. And I can't necessarily criticize it for that because there was so much, much good acting and so many interesting scenes there, but um, just the, the, it just felt like the thread got lost and and that was kind of part of it. Yeah, I yeah. I think it just boils down to I don't think that Bergman is really interested at all in exploring why she is not speaking or how she got this way or uh how she can fix it. I feel like that would be uh the lazier version of this movie for lack of a better word. Um because it, it's when it all comes down to it it's basically it's a character study of these two women and how they where am i going with this (laughs) um how they they are essentially kind of the same person i guess Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah they kind of are if not reflection reflections of each other they're kind of um they're like yin and yang yeah almost. they're kind of they're kind of symmetrical mm. and i think that that's depicted pretty well in the the kind of visual of that of the, like that what was it like the turtleneck scene 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that I think that that's I think that makes sense. Yeah. I think yin and yang is kind of perfect. Mm-hmm. I also uh, I also feel like the lazy version of this movie would have made the two of them uh, eventually become lovers. Yeah, which I feel like I've seen a hundred other times, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm glad that it didn't go there. Me too. Holland Drive. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. I think yeah. it. I think that would have been. Um, you say lazy or cheap or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I, I agree. I, I think that was, it was a good to avoid that because it was, it just be and, too easy. Yeah. And I thought for a second, there's like one or two moments where I thought that maybe that's what was going to happen, but they pulled yeah. away at the last second. Yeah, me too. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, okay. So, so should we kind of wind down this, this review of, of persona? Um, Kind of, if we have any other thoughts before we get into ratings and and lists and everything, um, any any kind of str- straggling thoughts for Persona? A uh, quick question: uh, mm-hmm. Did either of you guys see uh, Bergman Island from last year the movie? No, no, I heard great things, but no, I didn't see it. Okay, I, I was just curious because uh, it's it's a basically it's about. Uh, an island where Bergman uh, wrote and shot a number of his movies. And I mm-hmm. feel like this one might have been on that island. I don't know mm. for sure. Um, but it, it's not, you know, you don't have to be a Bergman expert or really know anything mm. about him. It's uh, about more than that, but just, yeah. just curious. Yeah. The official tagline for Bergman Island, you don't need to be a Bergman uh expert or an island expert but you'll love this movie um but no i heard really great things about that movie but i just didn't get around to it yeah it is really good yeah tiny do you have any parting thoughts on persona um yeah i feel like i kind of ragged on it a little bit but i do think it's a really highly influential and it's it's a good movie i'm glad i'm glad i watched it i might watch it again sometime and Mm -hmm. it's something i would recommend to certain people for sure so um i don't want people to think that i think it was a bad movie by any stretch mm-hmm. um it, it like i said it held my attention really well and i was really kind of on the edge of my seat sometimes as to what was going to happen next so nice nice i don't really have any parting thoughts for persona i i appreciate it, it the weirdness and disjointedness of it didn't really connect with me but i do feel like there's there is stuff in the movie that I could kind of haphazardly latch onto. And I feel like the more that I let this movie ruminate in my mind, and if I revisit it down the road, I feel like it's a movie that will kind of grow with me and I'll kind of key into things that I missed uh, the first time around. So I can't fault the movie for that. I can't say that I dislike the movie. It's just that I didn't connect with it uh, too strongly and I feel like there's just a lot that I was missing and uh, that's a fault of me as a viewer and not the movie as a movie um, but I do think that it's it's one of the more unique movies that I've seen um, in recent years and uh, it makes me cautiously optimistic to watch more of Bergman's stuff and makes me a little bit uh, a little bit cautious about the fact that I spent so much money on that on that <laughs> blu-ray set to be fair, it was I think it was during a Barnes and Noble like fifty percent off sale or something. But um, hey, I'll take it off your hands if you don't want it. <laughs> yeah. I'll sign it like Ingmar Bergman, and then 
sell it to you for like <laughs> 500 um <laughs> not really that would be ridiculous um but no yeah uh yeah. yeah i i i also uh this made me want to watch more of his films for sure mm-hmm. uh just not only because i like this but because i want to see how similar the rest of his films are to this if yeah. they're all kind of this weird experimental uh kind of style or even if they're they're the same kind of genre mm-hmm. um yeah like i i know that like the seventh seal is kind of probably one of his most famous mm-hmm. movies uh like just because of the concept but other than yeah. that i i know nothing about it or mm-hmm. even less about the rest of his movies yeah same here yeah I asked I asked Brent uh mm-hmm. which of his movies I should watch next and he said he loves the Seventh Seal but he would probably recommend Wild Strawberries. Oh nice. So, okay. Yeah. Nice. I'll have to keep that in mind too. Um all right, so let's go on to our thumbs our ratings thumbs and great movies list. Uh Ben, since this was your pick, do you want to get us kicked off with your rating thumb and whether or not it's on your great movies list. Yeah. Uh, I gave it four and a half stars on letterbox. Um, uh, I would also say thumbs up and yeah, I would put it on my great movies list. Nice. I, like I said, I, I want to watch this again, just mm-hmm. not only, uh, because of, you know, the stuff that's vis- visibly on display, but the themes of it that I, that may or may not have gone over my head the first time. I feel like there's a lot that you can unpack on a second viewing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tiny, how about you? Um, I would give it a thumbs up for sure. Um, I gave it, I gave it two and a half stars on Letterboxd. I think I'd bump that up to three. I think that was a bit harsh. Mm-hmm. Um, don't think I'd put it on a great movies list. I do think in the future, you know, we're, I think we're going to come to some other Bergman movies. Uh, on this list and I have a feeling those might make my list. Um, maybe those are better mm-hmm. and maybe not better examples, but something that I might connect to better in the, in the Bergman collection. Um, nice. you know, seven seal or eight and a half or whatever. Oh, he um, didn't do eight and a half. Um, what was I thinking of? It was Fellini. Fellini who did eight and a half. You might be thinking of, uh, another Bergman movie. I don't know. <laughs> Price and Whispers. Yeah, Rise and Whispers is a famous one, I think. I don't know where I got uh, that from. Sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to think of what the heck I would replace it with on the list. Um, Same I actually here. Googled, <laughs> actually Googled like movies like Persona. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, one of them that came up that kind of jumped out to me that I thought was an interesting comparison, maybe I'd put on the great list is uh, this is a bit of a stretch, but Donnie Darko from 2001. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah, huh. it's. For yeah. for the record, it doesn't have to relate to this movie, right? Yeah, yeah, I know, but still, I think I think it's kind of fun when it does. Um, but that I think that speaks to how unique the movie is, though. Persona, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's. I'm not sure I've ever seen another movie like it. Also, kind of got some um, uh, some kind of flares of like Ex Machina. Um, yeah, a little bit kind of made me think of that a little bit. Um, sure, yeah, but. Yeah, if I had if I had to pick something, I'd, I'd probably pick Donnie Darko just because that really made me think. I was like, that's interesting that that's being compared or related to this. And I haven't watched that movie in a long time. I remember liking it a lot, 
but it's been a long yeah. time since I've seen it. So yeah, I'll, I'll throw that out there just, just kind of for fun. Nice. You know, uh, okay. So yeah, so my, my rating was three and a half stars, as I mentioned before. And, hmm, uh, Honestly, I I had it on my notes as a thumbs down <laughs> because I just did not connect with it. But it, I think in talking it out for this episode and everything, I've I've switched that to a thumbs up, a tentative thumbs up. I still would not put it on my great movies list, though, um, unfortunately. And I think I would probably replace it with The Lighthouse. Um because I just mm. think that that's somewhat similar and more. Yeah. Can't believe I weird. didn't think about that. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a good choice. I like that. Thank you. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. That's that's what I would I would do there. It doesn't dissuade me from watching more Bergman though. So I'm I I will see more Bergman stuff. Um, Here. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, I kind of wonder if there's any intrepid listeners out there, if they can, I, I don't know if we've ever had a uh, thumbs down pick. Uh, I, I can't remember. Um, yeah. Maybe someone can uh, get some extra credit and, uh, <laughs> and let us know. A thumbs yeah, down pick. As, as Like all of us have thumbs down. Any of us. I don't know oh, if yeah. I have. Oh, I'm sure that I have. Um, I don't yeah. think I've got a thumbs down. I... I think maybe the closest I would have come would be maybe JFK. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm I'm just kind of bringing up the... Uh, the archive page, which is not up to date. <laughs> so, um, yeah, cause I feel like I, I feel like I've had at least one thumbs down on it. Um, mm. but yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm also going to need someone out there to, uh, put together whatever we have said would go on our great movies list. Oh yeah. That's, that's kind of what, what we'd replace them with. Yeah. I would like to do that at some point. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, I'll probably drag my feet and uh, not uh, complete it. So if anyone wants to do it, yeah. Oh, I'm pretty sure I gave a thumbs down to the searchers. Mm. Yeah, um, fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Anyway. Um, yeah. So it, does that do it for our thoughts on persona? All right, great. Well, let's go ahead and round out the episode with uh, our third pick um, uh, for this. This was my pick, and it is 1972's The Godfather. Um, I'm going to play a clip from the trailer, and then we will kind of get into our discussion of The Godfather. And real quick, do you guys need a break or anything? I'm good. Good, good. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, here's a clip from the trailer for The Godfather. I never wanted this for you. Freedom, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. Michael, do you renounce Satan and all his works? 
I do renounce. Don't ask me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. So, The Godfather came out in 1972. It is one of the most iconic movies of all time. Uh, And the plot summary is... Uh, The aging patriarch of an organized crime dynasty in post-war New York City transfers control of the clandestine empire to his reluctant youngest son. Um, And I picked this movie because it's the freaking Godfather. (laughs) And also because this is the 50th anniversary and they just came out with a very nice Blu-ray and 4K Blu-ray set. Um, and they had the 50th anniversary screenings across the nation in theaters. And I got a chance to see it in theaters in Dolby cinema, um, recently. And I mean, I was just, I was floored by it all over again. I really, really love this movie. And I have a couple of anecdotes before I throw it to our discussion and everything, but I have two letterboxed reviews that I wrote for it. And, um, I just want to kind of talk about them um i'm not gonna read the actual uh letterbox reviews but basically i watched this in august of 2018 um this was that was one of my one of the many times i've seen this movie and then i recently watched it again in february in the theater and everything and what i found really funny was that um uh it like I'm so floored by this movie. I'm so enamored by it and everything. And like my, like my 2018 review was, uh, it had been too long since I've seen the Godfather. The acting talent on screen is absolutely remarkable. Blah, blah, blah. Just very, very glowing, re- glowing platitudes and everything. And then my tags were, <laughs> my tags revealed that I watched it at work on my phone. <laughs> um, and I just thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> um, but no, this is a masterpiece. It's an absolute masterpiece. I love it. Um, this is a movie that I first saw in, um, I believe, in high school. And it was a movie that I didn't quite get the appeal of. Like, I, I liked it because it was uh, like it was a movie snob. And it was like, oh, you're supposed to like The Godfather. But as I grow older and as I grew older, I kind of really started to appreciate the family dynamic and the the reluctant protagonism, I guess, of, of Michael Corleone and how, cause it, it's just, it paints such a dark and grimy picture of this crime syndicate. And it does it in with such a flourish of family obligation and, uh, this, this connectedness through quote unquote family that hasn't been replicated uh, in the 50 years since, save for the Fast and Furious franchise. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, no, I, I absolutely adore the, the Godfather and I really loved that I got to see it in Dolby, uh, this year. So, um, I just absolutely, I, I love it. I love it so much. So what do you guys think of Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 film, The Godfather? I'd been. 
yeah, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm super jealous. I wish I could have gone to see it in the theater. Hopefully mm-hmm. they do it again at some point this year. Yeah. Um, as for my history with it, uh, I don't know. I know for sure that I watched it my freshman year of college and I feel like I had seen it, you know, like on TV cause mm-hmm. I feel like it was on TV relatively regularly or cable TV. Uh, and I would check it out every once in a while there. Uh, but I know for sure that I saw it in full, like uninterrupted in college. Um, nice. and I mean, of course, uh, loved it. Um, of course I had known about it before I had ever watched it, you know, all the quotes, all the, you know, the Brando performance, mm-hmm. uh, all the imagery. Uh, I knew a lot of it before watching it in full. And I, I remember watching it and it finally clicking and being like, Oh yeah, I, now I understand that. Um, but I mean, <laughs> kind of what we talked about with like 2001, like what can you say about the Godfather anymore? Uh, that hasn't already yeah. been said and written about and, and all of it. Um, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, it's hard to find any faults with it. Uh, really. Um, I also know that this is one of my dad's favorite movies of all time. Um, and, Possibly one of my mom's as well. I haven't really mm. talked with her as much about it, but I know like one of my dad's favorite quotes, if not his absolute favorite quotes in any movie ever is leave the gun, take the cannoli. Mm-hmm. So uh, I always get a little giddy whenever that line comes up. Nice. nice. Yeah. Um. In just the... I mean, again, we've talked to death about this. Um, the world, uh, uh, the influence of this movie is is immeasurable, and the the longevity of it, in terms of being an icon of of film, really, is just undeniable as well. And it's something that just really, it's hard to put into words exactly, but. It's it's one of those ubiquitous movies that even if you haven't seen it, you've you're at least aware of its stature and even most, if not all, of the plot elements of it. Um, and it's just it's a movie that is it just really stands uh, kind of stands stands the test of time, I think. And it's interesting because kind of similar to what I was saying when we did Psycho the last time or the time before or a few times ago. Um, it's a movie that, that just really just, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's, it's undeniable. It's influence on mafia films and gangster movies and everything. Um, it's, it kind of laid a foundation for that because previous to that, I think that, you know, gangster movies were very, very cheap and kind of B movie kind of stuff. Um, this really got into a nuanced, um, a nuanced kind of emotional look at it. Um, and it, there's so much out there to, to read about and, and watch just tangentially related to the Godfather. Like I've been 
listening on Audible to Take the Gun, Leave the Cannoli, um, a book about the making of The Godfather. And then Paramount Plus has the Offer limited series that I haven't watched yet and I've heard mixed things about, but it's all about the making of The Godfather. And I just, I, I love that, that it has this endurance that over half, like it's now half a century old and it's, I mean, it is one of the pillars of, of American filmmaking and, and of film in general, in general. Um, so I don't know. I just, I love it. Nice. Yeah. Tiny. yeah. Sorry, yeah, Tiny, my, go ahead and tell us what, what your experience is. Sure. Yeah. My history with the movie started was probably too young to watch it. I think I was like 12 or 13, maybe. Mm-hmm. They had released like uh, some kind of VHS edition of it, and my parents got it, and they were just starting to kind of let me watch rated R movies. And nice, I'd heard about it, never seen it, and my parents were like, "Fine, fine, you can watch it." And you know, it didn't resonate too much with me because it's long movie; it's three hours long, <laughs> yeah, and it's really not much of an action movie. There's a lot of um, violence, obviously tons of, I kind of forgot about that. And this watch, watch through how much violence there is in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, there's tons. It's just mostly people talking, you know, a lot, a lot of talking. Um, and so as a 12 or 13 year, 13 year old, it didn't resonate as much with me, but then um, I think it was 2012. They did a remaster of it for a Blu-ray edition, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that was 2012. I think it was the 40th anniversary. Okay. Uh, and I bought that Blu-ray and watched it and it kind of solidified it for me again. But really watching it over the weekend this time really just was kind of blown away by how great how great this movie is. Um kind of like what echoing what you were saying, Matt, how it's so it's almost um it's almost like people can't analyze this movie anymore because it's it's kind of the pinnacle of American cinema. That's it's at the top of so many lists. If it's not at the top, it's in the top five, you know, and and should be. And and there's reasons why, but Ben said it too. It's like what 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 else can you say that hasn't already been said about the Godfather? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to explore why it's so veered and and it's also um why it's such a uniquely american mm-hmm. movie I, I i think that's what kind of helps elevate it obviously there's so many things that help elevate it because it's got a fantastic script camera work and visuals you know legendary performances it has all those things too but i think the idea of this family migrating to america and being their own values from the old country but still americanizing those values Mm -hmm. that's that's kind of the story of the american immigrant we're a nation of immigrants so we're all i think everyone who watches this movie feels a connection to it in that way um now we don't all become parts of a crime syndicate of course but um i I think speak for yourself (laughs) i think um Paying homage to where you came from is is a big um, big American thing, um, and so the movie's just inherently American, and I think that kind of what keeps it relevant keeps it in the zeitgeist and, and mm-hmm. part of popular culture. Um, that's kind of a 
top 101 analysis of why it's so <laughs> famous and people love it so much. But um, yeah, I, I, I um, this watch through, I just could not take my eyes off the movie. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I didn't feel like three hours to me. I didn't want it to stop. I didn't want it to end. Like I wasn't like, oh, they should, they should cut this part. In yeah. the past, I kind of had the opinion that uh, Michael Corleone's time in Italy was really, really bogged down the movie. <laughs> I thought that I same used to have thing. That opinion. Yeah, until I saw it in the theater this time, I'm like, it really isn't. It's it's. Oh, uh, yeah. I was it's terrific. Yeah, it's oh, terrific yeah. character development for Michael. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I I'm so glad that that mm-hmm. a reversed opinion of mine on on this walk this watch through. Um, I think the evolution of Michael Corleone is kind of astounding. He's mm-hmm. so boyish. In, in the beginning and he's uh feels like a kid you know um and by the time the end of the movie obviously he's he is the godfather you know mm-hmm. that's it's it's really remarkable his uh transformation and this is one of his first movies too that's the other thing that's really incredible. Yeah. he was yep he was kind of unknown uh before this movie so um yeah i, I really adore this movie um and i think before I was like, yeah, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. It's awesome. I love it. But it's this watch through whatever reason, um, give me more of a reason as to why I have that opinion or really, um, I, I felt a lot more. I had much more of a response to it. This watch through, um, I think this is maybe only the third time I've ever seen it. So, Oh wow. Nice. Um, Yeah. I I haven't watched it a ton. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, it's, it's, is an incredible movie and I'm, I'm really curious to continue talking about it with you guys. Nice. Yeah. Uh, cu- couple thoughts. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, I, uh, tiny to what you were just saying, I, I feel like this is, uh, like you can just kind of jump in and out of this movie. No problem. Um, but Matt, what you were saying earlier about, um, the offer, uh, tiny, have you watched any of that yet? Okay. No, I, I haven't either. And I, mm-hmm. uh, I, I remember I watched something on Pluto TV recently and one of the like two ads that would play while mm-hmm. I was watching whatever it was, was a commercial for the offer. Mm-hmm. And it was just the same shit over and over again. And it just looked awful. It, it does. It, it looks <laughs> really, it, it looks like it's, um, it looks like it takes this weird um, drama. It, it it's like I don't know. Based on the trailers I saw, it looks like it tries to make it more dramatic than it is. But it's already uh-huh. pretty dramatic um, in terms of the making of it and everything. It just seems. I'm curious to see it because it looks kind of bad. <laughs> yes, but I I would. Uh... Unfortunately, I would also say that I kind of do want to watch it because I would love to know as much as I can about the making of The Godfather because I feel like that is an interesting story that I would love to know more about. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, Tiny, what you were saying about how uh, the the Americanizing of this uh, or the 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 story of uh, 
Americanizing these characters. Uh, sorry if I'm paraphrasing. Um, but I think part of the magic of this movie is that is pointedly about like the American dream. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, the, the first line of the movie is I believe in America, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, and just how, you know, you can be the, the whole idea of America, especially in, what is this like 1946 or late 40s early yeah. 50s maybe um the the whole thing around that time was just you can be anything you want to be america is a place of prosperity and promise mm-hmm. and you can do that even if it involves you know murdering people mm-hmm. and being involved in uh gambling and crime and drugs and everything yeah absolutely and and I'm struggling to think like, is there a movie that is there a movie in the fifty years since the Godfather since the Godfather oh my God since the Godfather <laughs> that has depicted or or set out to depict uh, like another twisted um, twisted view of the American dream um, by any means necessary and everything. Um, that has been close to the the brilliance of the Godfather because I'm I'm sure that there's probably something that reaches close to it, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Goodfellas. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Also, R.I.P. Ray um, Liotta. <laughs> I would say non-crime mafia movie would be something like Forrest Gump. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh. American Dreamish. I I don't know if that's accurate but mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh maybe sorry to bother you <laughs> um, don't look up no yes yes this generation's <laughs> dr strange love this generation's the godfather oh jesus christ <laughs> jesus um, <laughs> um yeah, I I mean, I I love The Godfather. I don't know exactly what else to say. And something something else when I when I saw it in high school, um I did kind of want it or expect it to be um more of a action thriller kind of thing because I was a dumb teenager and there is some of that like I mean, the toll booth scene is incredible, and the entire the montage of uh, at the baptism is iconic. Like, yeah. oh my god, brilliant, absolutely. Um, but when I was a when I was a kid, I couldn't really like. I don't know. Maybe I didn't try hard enough to understand like the inner workings of like, okay, they're, they don't like that family and that family's doing this. They're, they're starting to do, to deal drugs and they don't want to do, wait, why? Um, but it's weird. Cause as I mean, that's me as a dumb kid, but now I'm like, oh yeah, it's, it's a pretty, pretty easy to follow plot. Like it's pretty straightforward. Um, yeah, I don't know, but I love it. It's good. It's, also, it's funny how, sorry, go ahead, tiny. I was just going to mention quickly. I think um, another thing of note about the movie is that I obviously we weren't alive in 1972, mm-hmm. and we, you know, we don't didn't know the national conscious of the the zeitgeist is 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 the right word uh, mm-hmm. to use. But um, 
1972, but I, I don't know how, how much people understood the inner workings and rules of the mafia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the, mm-hmm. this, this movie taught people what a consigliere is mm-hmm. and uh, what a godfather is. That's a Sicilian message that Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just the, yeah, all the terminology and all, all the crazy stuff, um, all the rules of mafia. Um, and that's all become pretty well known. I mean, that's, it's, it's pretty between this and Goodfellas and the Sopranos and all the other, you know, the downfall of the Gotti family in Mm -hmm. real life, not not the dramatization, all, all that stuff really is part of the, popular culture now people understand what those things mean and and i I'd, I'd be curious to go to 1972 or to you know see how obviously there were gangster movies before this you know like the cagney movies and stuff like that there was some some mafia stuff before this but this mm-hmm. was this transformed that and i i'm wondering how how well people responded and responded to this and followed it without that knowledge like going into the movie our generation we know what all that stuff means we yeah. it wasn't hard for us to come on what a consigliere is and all mm-hmm. that stuff um I, I think it'd be really interesting to see go back and interview people mm-hmm. uh, hey did you have trouble trying to follow what's going on there's these families it's a syndicate it's mm-hmm. it's a national thing it goes back to the old country you have to be sicilian this is a consigliere. This is this. This is that. There's captains. All this crap. I, you know, I, I wonder if people picked up on that, and or if it was a um, challenge for them to wrap their heads around that because it's it just it's second nature to like our generation. Yeah, and I think at the time, at the time, yeah, they they had already had like it was like organized crime wasn't i i'm talking completely out of my ass of stuff, stuff that i listened to in the audio book for the for the book um about the making of the godfather but um so i vaguely remember this but i think that like the big kind of the thing that kind of blew the doors open about organized crime i think was um someone someone um give me a presentation uh testifying in front of like congress or something about the existence of like organized crime syndicates and everything um mm. so i think it was in the public consciousness um yeah cuz and i i think that um at the time it was it was in the public consciousness i guess so yeah i don't well, know how involved it was and uh to go along with that like the book that this was based on don't quote me on this but i feel like the book was a huge success when it came out yeah um, oh it was massive which, yeah which came out uh in 1969 so they it was big 3 years before the movie yeah um and have either of you guys read the book i have not no, no. okay I, I i actually uh read it in between uh when you made this pick matt and and now um it is it's a quick read Mm -hmm. uh it's movie is definitely better Mm -hmm. um it it definitely follows very closely and faithfully to the book Mm -hmm. um but uh it's it's interesting the stuff that 
uh, was cut from the book to the movie. Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot more time uh, dedicated to Johnny Fontaine. Mm. Um, mm. And then uh, all the stuff that's in the Godfather part two, like the, the stuff about Don Corleone's uh, childhood and his upbringing mm. and his life. Once he moves to New York, that's also in the first book. So uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting book. I don't know. Hmm. I didn't love it, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, I, I like the adaptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, sure. and sorry, uh, to, yeah. to go along with what you guys were saying with just how ubiquitous this is now. Um, I, I feel like, you know, th- this happens with every great movie, but the imitators who, uh, took almost the wrong lessons from this movie. Um, you know, just thinking that they can replicate the, I don't know, the the structure of the uh, mafia family and thinking that that is all that it is. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like that's, that's why The Godfather kind of stands alone. Not only because it was the first, but... Uh, because it did it the best. Yeah. Um, another thing that jumped out to me in this viewing um, that I wanted to ask you guys about, unless I'm mistaken, the two, the two most pivotal characters in the movie are Michael Corleone and Vito Corleone, Don Vito Corleone. Mm-hmm. They don't really, they don't really share any dialogue till two and a half hours into this movie. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, they, there might be one Pretty or much. two little where they talk a little bit, but like yeah. they actually like have sharing a dialogue scene like two and a half hours into the movie when basically when on Corleone is kind of semi-retired after mm-hmm. he's kind of recovered from being shot and Michael's basically running the family, they're like sitting out in the garden having a conversation is like the first time that they really talk. I was like, holy shit, how is that? That that blew me away. Just, yeah, it was, I don't know if you guys picked up on that, but. Mm -hmm. No, I hadn't, but that, that is really interesting. I mean, they, they do kind of talk to each other, I guess, but not like a back and forth. Like there's the famous line, you know, when he goes to visit him at the hospital, obviously, where he says, Mm -hmm. I'm with you now. Um, Right. But other than that, yeah, I, I don't think there's, and then maybe like a line or two when they're at the wedding at the opening, but beyond right. that, yeah, no, there isn't really much of anything. True dialogue scene doesn't happen until like two and a half hours mm-hmm. in the movie. I was yeah. like, oh, that's that blew me away. Oh yeah, yep. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of any parting thoughts. I don't really have much. I do recommend checking out that book. Uh, Take the gun, leave the cannoli. Or take yeah, take the gun, leave the cannoli. Or is it leave the gun, take the gun, leave the gun, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yes, Um, I would recommend uh, leaving this podcast and taking the audiobook. (laughs) Oh no, listen to the finish this podcast. But anyway, um, (laughs) no, uh, (laughs) that book so far has been pretty interesting in a lot of. uh, It kind of delves into um, Mario Puzo's history and like he was like a pulp. A uh, pulp writer who was kind of just writing, writing these kind of trashy detective uh, stories. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just to you know make ends meet and everything and then and then like the detail that it goes into about some of the um the experience he had researching the book is just it's it's pretty interesting so i i recommend checking that out um because yeah it's interesting also um i know francis for coppola like released or there was a there was a book that was the uh, the godfather notebook that was like um his notes on uh either the screenplay or the novel i think the screenplay it was like a copy of the screenplay with his notes written in it and everything um i've always been curious to to get that and comb through it but just never have um yeah nice yeah so shall we go into ratings thumbs and great movie uh status um for Uh, the godfather sorry real quick Mm -hmm. uh two things uh one this is uh one of the first movies that i can remember where uh i keyed into like creative like artistic decisions and it was actually uh uh given to me by my mom because she pointed out the whole orange thing and how yeah. just before everyone or someone dies mm-hmm. there's an orange in the scene and i i've that still sticks with me, me uh, too. how that's like it it doesn't really need that but it was just a, a creative decision put in there that i love yep um, yeah uh, and a quick question for you guys. I was mm-hmm. trying to think of this uh, uh, while I was watching this last time, but you guys have a pay- favorite performance? Because it's so hard to pick from who. Like, obviously, Brando and then uh, Pacino is incredible. And then, you know, Robert Duvall is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Kahn is gr- amazing. Even uh, uh, Diane Keaton yeah it is great yeah yeah um i would i would honestly say pacino um pacino yeah yeah i would say pacino and and james con also like they're they're two they're they're two sides of a spectrum those performances and it's so it works so well together like when um when james con's big scene happens it's like it's 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 amazing. So yeah, I would say to those two. Nice. Um, for me, the only answer is Marlon Brando. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, this, this is, it's arguably the best performance of all time. I mean, I, I, right. I don't know what, what would beat it, you know? Um, and, and for me, what sets it apart is his, his physicality and his improvisation of it. Um, because I think, a lot of actors would have been um, cartoonish trying to do the whole jowly cheek thing and voice and um, kind of Italian immigrant drawl that he picked for this movie. I think it would have been fumbled horribly by a lesser actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also love the improvisation that he did famously the opening scene uh, where he's talking to the Undertaker guy, cat was not in the script. He there was a mm-hmm. cat on the studio, yeah. and he just picked it up and put it in the scene. That's that is legendary. Um, there, there's some other physical things that he does that are so um, Arlen Brando's ability to just be natural and to just be the character 
as opposed to Marlon Brando acting. He he's just like he's he's so transformative. It's really incredible. Um, there's a couple parts where he's like, um, I think it's when he's meeting with Salazzo for the first time, and he kind of like getting ready to sit down next to him and give him the bad news, and he just kind of brushes off the chair. Like mm-hmm. it's just such a natural thing. I, I was like, who? What? How does that pop into his mind to do something like that? It feels like yeah, feels like we're just watching a real person that Marlon yep. Brando became. Yep, it's, it's really. To me, that's the only answer is Marlon Brando. I, I, I am I was blown away, and it's funny because he doesn't have a lot no. really in the movie. I mean, he has yeah. a limited amount of dialogue. Mm-hmm. What he does with it is just astounding. I, I, to, to me, it's it's Brando all the way. It's it's yeah. funny. Uh, two things, uh, real quick. Uh, it's funny to that point. Tiny, you an argument could be made that he would be a supporting actor for the Oscars, but obviously Mm -hmm. he won the lead actor. Um, And then it's uh, funny that you described his uh, performance as possibly being cartoony when there is literally a character that is a cartoon uh, because of this character, which is the Simpsons fat Tony. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think I think a lesser actor it would it would have just been it would have mm-hmm. been silly. It would have been over the top and silly, but he just makes it work. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um so yeah, should we go into our ratings and status and everything and thumbs? Yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. Well, uh since this was my pick, I'll go ahead and say it. Obviously, five stars, thumbs up, definitely on my great movies list. Um one of my favorite movies in general and um yeah absolutely across the board great great stuff yep uh ben how about you same (laughs) (laughs) and tiny across the board (laughs) nice yeah um resoundingly five stars thumbs up and uh on the greatest list nice nice Great. Sorry, uh, real quick. Is this on either of your uh, personal favorite movies lists? That's a good question. I want to say it is on my top 25 because I have a top 25 that I've expanded to a top 50. But um, my top 25 all-time favorite movies. Jeez, I have so many stupid lists on Letterboxd. Uh, all-time favorite <laughs> movies. Um, this is... Oh, ooh, ooh. oh, wow. It's not on my top 50. So, damn. Uh-oh. Okay. Huh. I don't have an official list, um, but the, after watching it this time, yeah, for sure. It, it would be on a top 20 for sure. Yeah. Um, I will have to reconfigure that. <laughs> hmm. Um yeah. Oh yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess that'll do it for those reviews for this edition of the Ebert's Great Movies list. Um now to kind of wind down, we're going to pick the next titles we're going to be covering on the ebert's great movies list review series on the obsessive viewer podcast which should hopefully be done i'm hoping that we can do that the end of july fingers crossed we'll see um so 
Um, let's go kind of chronologically from release date of it. So, uh, Tiny, since your pick this time was number one, do you want to hit us with your pick for uh, Ebert's Great Movies list part 14? Yes, uh, I have been kind of trending on uh, older movies from 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, I did do the right thing, which is 89, so that's a little bit uh, more recent on the list. I wanted to pick a more recent movie. Um, so I, cho- I chose 1998's Dark City. Oh, interesting. Uh, which I've seen before, but I really don't remember it. So I'm mm-hmm. curious to uh, to watch it again. Nice. Okay, do you know if it's streaming anywhere? Uh, it's not streaming for free anywhere. Again, okay. I'm sorry to do that to you guys. <laughs> um, it, you, you, you can rent it on Amazon mm. and some other places. So Nice. Okay. All right. And uh, I've never seen it. Yeah, uh, I saw it, I think, in high school, but that's that's about it. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Ben, how about your pick for part 14 of the Ebert's Great Movies List review series on ObsessiveViewer.com or Obsessive Viewer Podcast? All right. Well, I'm uh, going to stick with my own theme of watching uh, movies from directors that I've never seen before. Uh, and actually, I've never seen any of their movies before. Uh, it's uh, from 1948, The Red Shoes, directed by uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Um, mostly because I own the, the Criterion 4K. So <laughs> nice. This will be my excuse to watch it. Awesome. Um, oh, uh, and it is streaming. Uh, one sec. Let me find mm-hmm. where exactly HBO max criterion channel canopy and Pluto TV. Nice. Sweet. Sweet. Um, all right. Well that leaves me and, uh, to kind of continue with a theme that I've done, uh, did the conversation, did the Godfather, might as well do the Francis Ford Coppola trifecta and do the Godfather part two from 1974. Um, nice. yes, I have not seen this movie in several years. Um, so I'm very anxious and excited to see it again and see how it fares in comparison to the original, Um, because this is one of those movies that is, you know, um, celebrated as being better than the, better than its predecessor. And considering that its predecessor is one of the most iconic films of all time, (laughs) it's, uh, interesting to, uh, to dive into it. And The Godfather Part 2 is currently available to stream on Paramount Plus along with the limited series, The Offer and The Godfather. And, uh, actually also... Uh, the Godfather Part Three, like Coda, the death of Michael Corleone, the new re-edited um, version from Francis, Francis Ford Coppola. All that's on Paramount Plus. Um, so yeah, so we will be tackling The Godfather Part Two, The Red Shoes, and Dark City in July. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah. Uh, before we go for this episode, um. Do you guys have any parting thoughts on Ebert or movies or anything? Anything at all? (laughs) Um, No, I don't think I have anything else to say. Great round. Another great round. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Quick plug for the website, if I may. I was just going to, I was just going to throw it to you for that. (laughs) What, what do you got for us on the movie state.com? 
Uh, now posted, um, I watched the, uh, watched and reviewed, um, the HBO limited series Irma Vep, which I really enjoyed. It's got Alicia Vikander, um, and she's fantastic. Uh, I did, uh, episodic reviews of the new season of Stranger Things. Um, Tiny, have you gotten around to watching that yet? Uh, I'm, I watched the first episode, uh, and part of the second. Okay. Nice. Um, and then, uh, as of this recording just today, this is not on my website, but, uh, the mm. happy Madison journey continues on midwestfilmjournal.com, nice. uh, where I reviewed the Adam Sandler vehicle hustle, which is, uh, surprisingly pretty good. Nice. So, I won't say too many thoughts on that because I'll save it for the summer of Sandler revival. So <laughs> right, <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I, I would uh, believe it or not, I would recommend it. I think it's one of the better Happy Madison movies. Sweet, wow. awesome. Well, I'll put links to all that in the show notes and everything. And quick plug for the Patreon. Um, at the $2 and above levels, I am doing episode reviews of Stranger Things. Those episodes are going to be put together into an obsessive viewer episode at the end of the month in preparation for uh, volume two of season four coming on July 1st. But uh, in order to get my episode reviews of the last two episodes of Stranger Things on July 1st, uh, you'll have to sign up for the Patreon. But you'll get the first seven um, just, to, just to wet your beak. But um, I also did episode reviews of Hawkeye. And, uh, I finally finished foundation and chapel weight and, um, I have a lot of stuff on there <laughs> and, uh, yeah, sign up at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, I've also been doing immediate reaction recordings, um, for movies that I see. So I did like, uh, like Top Gun and, um, uh, a bunch of other stuff too, um, so all that's on the feed. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. Check it out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Oh, oh, I'm also doing um, book reviews. So I've been doing uh, my Church of King for Tower Junkies where um, I've been doing short fiction recordings or short fiction reviews of, hang on. So <laughs> Patreon exclusive short fiction reviews from Stephen King's collected works. So I did all of Night Shift in January that ran about six hours total covering 20 stories, um, each recorded individually in depth, all that stuff. And I just finished last weekend. I just finished my coverage of skeleton crew, which was told, which was done in six parts, about six and a half hours worth of audio, 22 stories, uh, covered on that. So all of that's on Patreon, $2 and above level, $2 and above levels. Uh, check that out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And, uh, and yeah, I guess that does it for this episode. Um, thank you guys so much for joining me and I'm looking forward to our next rendezvous, uh, with the Ebert, uh, list and all the other stuff we have, uh, coming up, I guess. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and play us out. Uh, just want to say once again, thank you guys so much for listening and, um, and yeah, again, check out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Uh, yeah, tiny Ben, thank you guys. And, uh, we'll see you in the next episode.
And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Hmm. I spent that sweet. entire weekend at the pool, uh, so it was very nice. Oh, sweet. Yeah, it was funny because uh, when I lived at Darby Court, seven years, never once went to the pool, <laughs> and now at my complex... <laughs> The day that the pool opened, uh, Jess and I went and like we spent like we were we were literally the first people <laughs> at the pool when it <laughs> opened on Saturday morning. Um, and like it's it's very relaxing. It's very nice. I actually got tan a little bit. I don't think you guys can really tell, but um, I'm <laughs> I'm an outdoor man now. I'm right. Yeah, I'm an, I'm an outside man. Um, <laughs> yeah that's great uh but no it's a lot of fun yeah this podcast was edited and produced by matt hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com you can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts for exclusive bonus content including reviews commentaries and b-roll episodes you can subscribe to our patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode